Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our September 2011 issue. Let's get started. Our lead article this month summarizes the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approach to its review of the new antidepressant, velazodone, which the FDA recently approved for the treatment of major depressive disorder. Although all the authors are affiliated with the FDA, their contributions to this article were made in their private capacity with no official support or endorsement from the FDA. The authors discuss the clinical pharmacology and the clinical efficacy and safety data for this new drug, which has a clinical profile most similar to SSRIs, as well as important issues in the FDA's decision-making. The authors used original raw data sets for all clinical trials included in the development program for velazodone. Data were available from 24 human trials involving velazodone and included almost 2,900 human subjects exposed to one or more doses of this drug. The researchers found that velazodone is effective in treating major depressive disorder at a dose of 40 milligrams per day but it needs to be incrementally adjusted to this dose to minimize gastrointestinal symptoms. It needs to be taken with food to ensure adequate plasma concentrations. Velazodone's profile of adverse events is similar to that seen with SSRIs. It is unknown whether velazodone has any advantages in comparison to other drugs in the antidepressant class, no dose adjustment is needed on the basis of age, gender, or renal or hepatic impairment. Other factors may lead to more cautious dosing in certain patients. For instance, the dose should be reduced when taken with certain other drugs. The pharmaceutical sponsor has agreed to conduct post-marketing studies to evaluate velazodone's long-term efficacy, the efficacy of a 20-milligram dose, and its efficacy in pediatric patients. The rise in worldwide combat and terror violence during the last decade has led to a greater awareness of the mental consequences of combat and terror-related trauma. In many people, exposure to these types of trauma leads to development of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Research shows that prolonged exposure therapy can reduce PTSD symptoms, although the number of such studies is small. A team of researchers from Israel and the United States compared the efficacy of prolonged exposure therapy with that of treatment as usual in 30 patients with PTSD stemming from either combat or terror-related trauma. Symptoms of PTSD and depression were measured before and shortly after treatment and also at 12-month follow-up. Severity of PTSD symptoms was significantly lower at post-treatment and 12-month follow-up in patients undergoing prolonged exposure therapy and similar results were found in this group for measures of depression. However, such results were not observed for the treatment-as-usual group. 
Overall, prolonged exposure therapy appears to lessen combat and terror-related PTSD symptoms and to be superior to treatment as usual in reducing symptoms of PTSD as well as depression. Major depression rarely exists in a vacuum. It often affects how patients recover from medical illness. Our next article reports the findings of a group of Canadian researchers who investigated the effects of DSM-4 major depressive disorder on cardiac rehabilitation in a cohort of patients with coronary artery disease. MDD was diagnosed in about 22% of almost 200 patients entering a one-year outpatient cardiac rehabilitation program. Rates of non-completion and non-adherence to cardiac rehabilitation were higher in patients with MDD than in those without. In addition, patients with MDD had worse outcomes in changes in peak oxygen uptake and they had poor body fat outcomes. The researchers found that DSM-4 major depressive disorder remained a significant barrier to effective cardiac rehabilitation despite having depression screening and psychosocial support as structured components of care. The authors of our next article indicated that they could find no published studies examining mortality risk as a function of both depression and resting heart rate. Thus, they determined to examine the combined effects of depressive symptoms and resting heart rate on mortality in a large cohort of almost 6,000 British adults with a mean age of 61 years. Depression alone is a major public health issue worldwide. There is evidence that depression can nearly double the risk for all-cause mortality. Resting heart rate, an indicator of autonomic nervous system activity, has also been found to be an independent predictor of mortality, with the risk for all-cause mortality increasing in a dose-response manner with increasing resting heart rate. In mutually adjusted regression models, depression and resting heart rate greater than 80 beats per minute were independent predictors of mortality. After adjustment for potential confounders and mediating variables, participants with both depression and high resting heart rate had a three-fold higher risk of premature death compared to depression-free participants with resting heart rates ranging from 60 to 80 beats per minute. The risk was particularly marked in participants with coronary heart disease. This study provides evidence that the coexistence of depressive symptoms and elevated resting heart rate is associated with substantially increased risk of premature death. Treatments that improve both depression and resting heart rate might improve survival. Major depressive disorder with psychosis occurs in about 15% to 19% of community cases with depression. Several studies have considered long-term outcomes in these patients, but far fewer have investigated whether the diagnosis itself changes across time. To learn more about this, the authors of this article conducted a study in which they considered how often the diagnosis of MDD with psychosis was revised across 10 years. 
The study sample included 146 inpatients with psychosis. They were assessed at four time points, at baseline and at six-month, 24-month, and 10-year follow-ups, and all were diagnosed with MDD with psychosis at least once. Diagnoses at each assessment were based on semi-structured interviews, medical records, and reports from key informants. Only 38% of participants were diagnosed with psychotic depression at each available assessment. 9% switched from MDD to bipolar disorder. 16% switched from MDD to the schizophrenia spectrum, and the remaining participants had other patterns of diagnostic change. In comparison to participants who were consistently diagnosed with psychotic depression, those switching from MDD to bipolar disorder had better premorbid adjustment, had more first-degree relatives with MDD, had better functioning, and had fewer negative symptoms at baseline. Those shifting to the schizophrenia spectrum had a more insidious onset, had longer initial hospital stays, had worse functioning, and had more negative symptoms. The authors concluded that the diagnosis of MDD with psychosis among inpatients showed poor long-term consistency. For clinicians, Results indicate that the diagnosis of MDD with psychosis based on a single assessment should be considered provisional. Our next study sought to assess, one, the quality of reporting of randomized controlled trials of pharmacologic treatment of bipolar disorder, two, the potential improvement in quality of reporting over time, and three, differences in quality of reporting between journals that endorse or do not endorse the uniform requirements for manuscripts submitted to biomedical journals developed by the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors. This study was conducted as an independent project within the development of the German evidence-based and consensus-based S3 Guideline for Diagnosis and Therapy of Bipolar Disorders. A systematic literature search identified 105 relevant randomized controlled trials published between 2000 and 2008. A checklist based on the Consolidated Standards of Reporting Trials, or CONSORT statement, of 2001 was used to assess quality of reporting of all included studies. The findings suggest that while some trial-related information was well reported, much of the reporting quality fell well below the level required for adequate interpretation of methodological quality and clinical relevance. In particular, reporting was especially poor for randomization procedures and effect measures. There was a consistent trend, however, towards better reporting in journals that endorse the uniform requirements. Since results of randomized controlled trials have a significant impact on clinical decision-making, guideline development, and health technology assessment, vigilance is required when relying on the results of these trials for recommending and prescribing new treatments. 
Investigators who are submitting journal articles would do well to follow guidelines such as the consort statement. And while the responsibility for improvement of reporting should lie primarily with the investigators, reviewers and editors of psychiatric or general journals could facilitate the process by endorsing guidelines such as the consort statement. Diagnostic criteria for neuroleptic malignant syndrome have heretofore been based on the clinical experience of individuals or small groups or on analyses of published case reports. The absence of specific known risk factors, the very low incidence of the syndrome, and its unpredictable occurrence have impeded prospective research and clinical management of patients receiving antipsychotic medications. Our next article describes a Delphi consensus procedure performed in 2009 by an international multi-specialty physician panel. Their aim was to develop a diagnostic criteria for the neuroleptic malignant syndrome that reflect broad consensus among clinical knowledge experts. The Delphi technique is especially useful for developing consensus among experts when experimental evidence is lacking or is difficult to obtain. The procedure consisted of survey rounds in which priority points were assigned to all the possible criteria. Individual panel members' responses were fed back to the group anonymously. Items that failed to receive a minimum priority score were eliminated from the next round. This process continued until a predefined consensus endpoint was reached. The panel reached consensus on the fifth round regarding eight criteria. They also reached consensus on the relative importance of these criteria and on the critical values for the quantitative criteria. This consensus process greatly advances the field, but the results require validation before being applied in clinical settings. I direct you to our website, psychiatrist.com, for full results from this important consensus project. Statin medications are known to reduce oxidative stress and immune activation in cardiac patients. Patients with depression often have impaired immune function, increased immune activation, and higher oxidative stress similar to that seen in cardiac patients. Noting this relationship, Stafford and Burke sought to determine whether statins could prevent the development of depression in individuals who have had a cardiac event or intervention. They examined the development of depression in 184 Australian patients who had been hospitalized for a cardiac procedure. At discharge, just over 80% of patients were taking statins. Patients taking statins were significantly less likely to have developed depression at both three months and nine months after discharge. These findings opened the door to rational and novel therapies, distinct from conventional antidepressants, which have a limited range of efficacy in the treatment and prevention of depression. When making treatment decisions for patients experiencing an acute manic or mixed episode, it is of clinical importance to identify as early as possible those patients who will ultimately become treatment responders or non-responders. At present, reliable clinical or pharmacogenomic markers for the prediction of treatment outcomes in acute mania do not exist. 
A myriad of potential benefits could directly result from the ability to rapidly identify individuals who are not likely to respond to initial drug treatment, including reduced exposure to ineffective medications and decreased costs. The authors performed a post hoc analysis of data from a three-week randomized double-blind clinical trial of olanzapine or risperidone to treat adult inpatients with DSM-4 bipolar 1 disorder. They hypothesized that early improvement by week 1, regardless of treatment assignment, would be a sensitive and specific predictor of response and or remission at week 3. Receiver operating characteristic, or ROC, curves, sensitivity and specificity, and positive and negative predictive values were calculated to determine whether early improvement predicted week three response or remission. Results showed that improvement in manic or mixed symptoms at week one appears to be a good predictor of treatment outcomes. Patients who achieved response by week one were likely to remain responders at week three. Patients who did not have sufficient improvement at week one were less likely to reach response or remission by week three. These data suggest the potential to assess benefit in the treatment of manic or mixed symptoms within one week of initiating olanzapine or risperidone. This study was supported in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Cardiovascular disease and major depressive disorder are frequent worldwide and have a high comorbidity rate. Omega-3 fatty acids have been suggested as disease modulators for both conditions. In the next study, the authors investigated whether polyunsaturated fatty acids and omega-3 index may represent markers for assessment of cardiovascular risk in somatically healthy patients suffering from MDD. The authors conducted a case control study over three years to determine whether inpatients with DSM-4 major depressive disorder but who were free from cardiovascular disease would differ in terms of cardiovascular risk factors and omega-3 index from matched healthy controls recruited from a preventive cardiology department. They also investigated the association between interleukin-6 and the omega-3 index. During the study, patients received no supplementation with omega-3 fatty acids. Response and remission were defined using the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. Several conventional risk factors, such as high triglyceride levels and fasting glucose values, as well as greater waist circumference and higher body mass index, were more prevalent in MDD patients versus controls. The omega-3 index and levels of individual omega-3 fatty acids were significantly lower in MDD patients. An omega-3 index less than 4% was associated with high concentrations of interleukin-6. All these findings explain, at least to some extent, the increased cardiovascular risk of MDD patients. The authors suggest a new approach for intervention studies. Using omega-3 fatty acids or omega-3 rich diets to reduce the cardiovascular risk of MDD patients preemptively and to augment 
antidepressant treatment. They also suggest that a low omega-3 index might be a novel biological risk marker for MDD. This month we finish up our articles with a potpourri of five timely topics in our section on childhood and adolescent mental health. First, it is well known that bipolar disorder presents significant health consequences for both individuals and society. What is less known is the extent to which young people are affected by the disorder. Some researchers have also wondered whether credence can be given to the widely held perception that the United States has the highest rates of pediatric bipolar disorder. The researchers for this study, which received funding from Fulbright, the National Institutes of Health, and the Portuguese National Foundation for Science and Technology, have weighed in on these issues by producing a meta-analysis of published epidemiologic data on childhood psychiatric disorders. Their results showed that the overall rate of bipolar disorder was 1.8%, which was statistically significant. There was no significant difference in the mean rates between U.S. and non-U.S. studies, but the U.S. studies had a wider range of rates. The highest estimates came from studies that used broad definitions and included bipolar disorder not otherwise specified. The prevalence of bipolar disorder did not increase over time. The authors assert that future epidemiologic studies should assess manic symptoms more systematically and in a way consistent with current clinical nosology. Moreover, longitudinal studies will be pivotal for facilitating replication and evaluating long-term stability and course. The DSM-5 is currently in drafting stages and is set to be released in its final form at the 2013 APA meeting. Some of the debate surrounding the content of the new edition is taking place right in the pages of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, and the September issue features a commentary by David Axelson and colleagues about one of the proposed diagnoses, temper dysregulation disorder with dysphoria. The authors strongly oppose including temper dysregulation disorder with dysphoria as a new diagnostic category in DSM-5. The purpose of the proposed diagnosis is to have an alternate diagnosis for young people with severe irritability who may be currently diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The diagnosis is based on two criteria, recurrent severe temper outbursts and chronically irritable or sad mood. The authors argue that because temper outbursts are an outward sign of irritable mood, the diagnosis of temper dysregulation disorder can be fulfilled with the presence of a single symptom and would not stand alone as a distinct diagnosis from, for example, oppositional defiant disorder. They also say that scientific support for the diagnosis is limited and that most of the support has emerged from a single research group. Our next article reminds us that depression is often a serious, debilitating illness in adolescents, yet a significant number of adolescents do not respond to antidepressant medications or psychotherapy. 
This group of U.S. researchers investigated the effects of repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or repetitive TMS, as an adjunctive treatment in adolescents with major depressive disorder. A prospective open trial of adjunctive repetitive TMS was conducted with eight adolescents who had MDD that had not responded sufficiently to two adequate medication trials. All subjects were maintained on a stable dose of an SSRI during the trial. Thirty repetitive TMS treatments were given once per day, five days per week, over six to eight weeks. Seven of the eight adolescents completed all 30 treatments. Repetitive TMS was well tolerated, and no significant safety issues were identified. Suicidal ideation was present at baseline in three of the adolescents, and this symptom improved during treatment. The primary outcome measure, the Children's Depression Rating Scale Revised, improved significantly from baseline to treatment 10 and continued to improve throughout the treatment series and at six months follow-up. This trial suggests that repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation is a safe, feasible, and potentially effective adjunctive therapy for treatment-resistant MDD in adolescents. The next article provides important information for clinicians about adverse events of aripiprazole when used for long-term treatment in pediatric patients. Recent evidence has shown aripiprazole to be safe and tolerable for treating pediatric patients who have irritability associated with autistic disorder. However, although the evidence is promising, it was born from only two short-term studies. How would the drug perform over the long term? The authors designed a study to answer this question. The study, which was funded by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Atsuka Pharmaceutical, measured the safety and tolerability of flexibly dosed aripiprazole in autistic outpatients over a 52-week period. Primary measures included adverse events, extrapyramidal symptoms, weight, metabolic measures, vital signs, and other clinical assessments. Almost 200 subjects completed the study. Adverse events, such as weight gain, vomiting, and increased appetite, were experienced by 86% of subjects. 10% discontinued treatment because of weight gain or aggression. Nine subjects experienced serious adverse events, most frequently aggression. Clinically significant metabolic abnormalities were also observed. The authors concluded that aripiprazole was generally safe and well-tolerated in the long-term treatment of irritability associated with autistic disorder in pediatric patients, but they note that weight should be proactively monitored during long-term treatment. In September 2004, a group of armed militants took over an elementary school in Beslan, Russia. Holding more than 1,000 people, including almost 800 children, hostage. After three days, the crisis ended in a bloody siege, in which over 300 hostages were killed, including 186 children. Our last article reports on a longitudinal study conducted by a group of Italian researchers to assess the course of psychological symptoms and coping behaviors in 33 adolescents who were either directly or 
or indirectly exposed to the 2004 terrorist attack. In this study, the investigators used rating scales to assess emotional and behavioral difficulties. Coping behaviors and post-traumatic stress symptoms of these youths one and one-half years after and three years after the attack. The researchers found that youths directly exposed the attack showed a significant increase in psychological distress and a decrease in active coping. Indirectly exposed youths, on the other hand, reported better mental health and more active coping over time. Boys, in comparison to girls, showed a disproportionate increase in psychological distress, emotional and behavioral problems, and avoidant coping. Direct exposure to the attack and the endorsement of avoidant coping behaviors significantly predicted the severity of post-traumatic symptoms at follow-up. The authors emphasized the importance of conducting follow-up studies to monitor long-term psychological functioning and to screen for adolescents who may need additional referral for trauma treatment. The long-term detrimental effects of avoidant coping on youth psychological well-being underscore the need to implement early psychoeducational interventions to minimize adverse outcomes and prevent chronicity of post-traumatic reactions. This month we have a must-read CME commentary developed from a roundtable conference in April 2011 for which Dr. Eric Ryman assembled a distinguished faculty to discuss the updated diagnostic and research criteria for Alzheimer's proposed by the National Institute on Aging and Alzheimer's Association work groups. These proposed updates include conceptualization of Alzheimer's as a sequence of biological changes that roughly correspond to the preclinical and increasingly severe clinical stages of the disorder, how the criteria might be related to developing DSM-5 criteria and the implications and potential impact of these criteria on clinical practice. There is a free online CME activity for this commentary. There are also other interactive activities this month from our CME Institute, as well as our always engaging letters and book reviews. Join us online for all these and much, much more from the September issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.